part of the reason why I fix it so quick is to show them that they can fix it that fast. There's no rules! Shoot a lower score! There's one rule! Come on. Welcome back to Franklin Bridge, where it has been a quick second, Scott. Yeah, um, been a little busy with uh, this studio coming in. Man, Our learning center, sorry for those that aren't. It's you, a little clear when you say learning center. And you just gave away our our, our whole intro and you know, I know, dramatic I know. Well, build you know, up to what we're going to be talking <laughs> about practice. today. It, well, it, true, <clears throat> but um, so yes, welcome back to Franklin Bridge on the back porch of Franklin Bridge, where we're joined by some of our friends here, and the sun is starting to go down over the 18th green. And man, it has been a crazy last three to four weeks here at Franklin Bridge. Yep. A lot more, I'm sure, that we don't recognize. A lot more work that has gone into it that we don't recognize yet. But our big announcement is we finally have our teaching studio out there next to the driving range. It's ready to go. See. Yep. Woo -woo. We had our inaugural shot hit um, earlier <coughs> tonight by Rob Wilkins. Um, the little uh, mid-level draw with a little extra shape. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Anywho, we had a little fun with it because we, because you know, I love giving stuff away. Um, but uh, we hit a, a probing one out onto the driving range. Um, but before we did it, we had Rob sign it, date it, and we put on their first studio shot. If you happen to find that in anywhere, in anywhere hitting golf balls, so most maybe, likely be in your range bucket, <laughs> right? Here the but next maybe day. somebody takes it on the golf course, they don't know what to do with it because they're not a River Club member and they play with it, and you see it out on the golf course, uh, bring it in for a free lesson. So um, <clears throat> we'll have some fun with that. Uh, $175 value. I want to take a poll real quick. Out, out of this table right here that's listening to us talk, if you found a golf ball that had a date, a signature, and first studio ball on it, would you put it into play or would you keep it? You would keep it? Keep it, keep it, keep would it? Would you ask somebody, like, does this entitle me to anything? Like, or would you just keep it? <laughs> yeah if you found it in your bucket or like because it'll go through the like they'll pick and it'll go through the whole system so like if you found it i would definitely pick it up <laughs> steven's a guy that's like i'm gonna hit every ball <laughs> i'm gonna take yeah it's a probably one uh, he said i'll take it <laughs> love it rick was like if i lost all my golf balls i'd definitely hit it well obviously we're it could be signed by Tiger Woods. I'm going to hit it. <laughs> Obviously, we're talking about the studio. This has been something that's been in the making um, ever since we started podcasting together, man, is finding a dedicated spot for students to be able to get a high-value lesson. Not that yours aren't high-value already, but being able to be in a space that really brings that extra value to the lesson. So well, I just yeah. want to turn it over to you and, and let you know kind of what – or ask you – what goes into the studio? What do you hope to gain from it? And what do you think is a, is a value add to the people who are actually <laughs> looking at getting lessons and being in the studio? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, um, we are creatures that um, are highly visual uh, learners. I mean, just look at most of marketing. is not actually around words. Like, words. Or, yeah. I mean, there are words on there and there are phrases. There are buzzwords like, or phrases to try and catch your memory. But <coughs> by and large, it's visual. Right. So 
uh, you know, you've heard this. If you listen to the podcast for a long time, Avery can probably tell us because uh, he's heard it so many times. But <laughs> uh, your brain processes 11 million bits of information every second. How many of them are visual? A 10 million. Yeah. So, a good you know, majority. Well, over 90% of the information you're taking in is visual. So um, <clears throat> one of the best tools is to have the visual feedback uh, of two-camera video. So um, obviously I've been using video on my phone. Um, that can be incredibly helpful. We can put that into uh, the Franklin Bridge Performance app. So like that's all good. We'll still be using that app. We'll still be uploading your video to that app. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you'll have two cameras uh, 120 angles. frames a 120 second. 120 frames a second. Super slow-mo. Correct. Um, so High definition. Although yeah. the iPhones do a pretty good job. Yeah, but I it mean, is the phones are fantastic, but they're not like in a standardized position where you're measuring exactly the same thing every time. And um, the other thing, too, that's cool, if you guys have ever watched Monday Night Football, um, I mean, any sport, hockey, baseball, you'll see a lot of the color commentators draw over the replays mm -hmm. as well to, to visualize yeah. certain things that's happening throughout the game. And we're able to do the same thing, correct? It really yeah, it really enhances memory. So be able to draw lines, be able to circle things. Um, one of the things I'm excited about, too, is the ability to go ahead and draw the lines on there when we start the lesson, when we end the lesson. Um, so your warm-up will be trying to put you in the spots that you were in before. So you wouldn't see this in a first lesson, uh, but you would see the closing part like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and upload your videos, uh, but I want you to go ahead and make some swings on this in that position. But here's what makes us different. Um, <coughs> one of the things that makes us different <coughs> is... Our monitors are not up on a TV, on a wall. We're not using mirrors on the sides. Our monitors are in the floor. In the floor. So you can stay in your posture. Very few places in the country have what we have. I was playing around with it, too. Uh, we were given some tours, and I was a little dummy to stand in to demonstrate the value of the cameras. And just in being a dummy and standing there and... and exemplifying what it's going to be like when you're standing in there. I noticed that, you know, my eyes automatically go towards the floor, obviously, because I'm looking down yeah. at the ball, but it felt, it felt so natural. It didn't feel like I had to make a swing and then walk across the room to go look at the replay, see the replay and then walk back and do it. Right. I got, you get to feel, and we talk a lot about feels on this channel as mm -hmm. well. You get to feel exactly what you're seeing. That's right in the floor in live time. And you don't have to come out of your posture. You can or move your head or like set it there and then look anytime you do that sort of stuff where you have to change position to look, you then are in the wrong position. And you can probably say like, all right, put your hands here and then put your hands here and you can see the difference while you're literally doing it. That's correct. Which is unreal. And so be able to show it like right after every swing mm -hmm. is really helpful to help people push it all the way there. Like, well, I felt like I did. I was like, well, there's a camera and we're literally hitting from the exact same spot. No, it's not in where we want it to be. So, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, a big difference. Uh, I'm a big field teacher, so having this uh, I'll still be very feel-based, um, but we'll be able to help you kind of hone in to what you do. And people are like, well, I've been to other places. Like, you can go to other places, but um, and people have gotten better at other places. But um, being able to bring my unique style of um, fitting your own unique golf swing and be able to explain to you why, you know, being able to show you immediately why that ball did what it did um, 
is really big. But so we have the cameras in there. Uh-huh. We have um, Foresight GC Quad, which is incredible because a lot of people is like, oh, cool, like just another TrackMan thing. Not necessarily. It does so much. So why don't you speak about yeah, that? Yeah. So for a TrackMan bit. and Foresight, uh, the GC Quad are the two best launch monitors on the market. Um, they're the best simulators on the market as well. Um, nothing's better than those two. Uh, traditionally, TrackMan's the big one. So they're a projectile tracking company. So when you see um, the strike zone in baseball, um, it's TrackMan. It's literally TrackMan. So they're not just golf. Like, they're in the projectile business. Some of the stuff you're seeing in the NFL where you see the ball fly and they pause and then they reorient, there are dozens of TrackMans in that. It's crazy considering that one of them is like 10 grand. 20 grand. 10, 20. Use, yeah, so use go, ahead, whatever, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Cost more than, well, a used car might cost more than that nowadays because the used car market's so crazy. Uh, but, um, so, you know, you figure you got 20 of those plus in a building. So, you know, you got a half a million dollars just in tech. <coughs> just that one piece of it because you still have video. Like, that's not video. That's just the measuring of the projectile. So, but, um, so they use dual Doppler radar. So they use two different measuring devices. So, um, they have to extrapolate just a little bit in terms of like the specificity of where the ball. Definitely, they're not as good man. at. Yeah, TrackMan yeah. is not as good at picking up where it's hit on the face, and that's everything to where that ball goes. Um, it's huge to have that piece. Uh, with the GC Quad, we actually are able to directly measure precisely where that ball is on that face, not extrapolate. So, from a lesson standpoint, being able to directly measure the club with four cameras. Um, allows us to be able to get it exactly right in terms of the club ball impact data. And so not only <coughs> that, but when we're using GC Quad, we can also open up the door on the teaching studio, and you can shoot out onto the range. And so not only do you get the feedback from the GC Quad, but you can also see the ball flight as well when you're when you're. That's correct. So one of the things that we have that a lot of these indoor places don't have is the ability to see real ball flight and from a club fitting standpoint. So we actually have uh, club fitting right there in the studio ready to go. So uh, for a one-off, like, hey, you know, I need to look at my driver, but I also want to work on my driver swing, we can go ahead and do both right there uh, all at once, get it ordered. Um, you don't have to go into the shop anymore to check in uh, for your lesson. You come straight to the studio, uh, and we'll take care of it from there. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Oh, so um, being able to have real ball flight outside uh, with the exception of severe weather, which allows us to come indoors with full simulation capabilities uh, projected onto the screen in front of you that your ball hits. Uh, but we'll also be able to hit off of the turf. Uh, when I was back in Birmingham at Greystone Country Club, we had um, the TaylorMade Performance Lab there. And so the way the TaylorMade Performance Lab worked is you got your club data, uh, ironically, with Foresight. Um, <clears throat> you got your club data uh, in there. The club was measured with 3D um, infrared positioning, crazy. It's a whole another thing in and of itself. But you got all that measured, and then it popped out a recommendation for the clubs that you needed. Then when they went down and hit balls on the grass off of the grass into the air. You know how many times they changed the fit? He changed the fit over 80% of the time. Unreal. And we had a whole podcast about <laughs> my fitting experience with Strixon and why mm -hmm. it's so beneficial 
to get fitted outside on turf where you can see your ball flight and feel how the club interacts with the turf as well. Yeah. So, and it's not just like, oh, I hit it better or I hit it worse off a of mat. It's not that. It's the ability to be able to test you in the environment that you're going to be in. Like interacting, like if golf courses were made out of AstroTurf, that would be a perfect, that would be a fantastic fit. You'd be measuring what it is that you're going to play on. But we're not made out of various forms of AstroTurf. We're playing off of real grass. Wouldn't that be cool if there's a whole 18-hole course that was just AstroTurf? It's happening right now. It's, Is it? Yep. They're looking at their places that are building greens, the high-traffic areas or poor climate that can't. Sure, sure. Super hot, super humid, whatever. They're actually building greens. The tech's not quite there to, yeah, for it yeah. to be a really awesome experience, but it's getting really close. That would actually be really cool. It is getting really close. So going so, back to the studio, yep. is it fair to say from a fitting standpoint, too, that we can get, you know, 80 to 90% of the work done in off the off the turf in the studio? And then when we're trying to get yeah, that, we're trying fine to dial tunes, it in. Yeah, yep. we can go out on the turf right we've next to the building, too. We've completely changed uh, lie angles, club length, changed shafts, completely changed shafts but from mat to grass. Um, so... Even though people are like, well, you know, off the grass it's going to spin less, whatever. You can do those, you know, calculations. calculations. Yeah. But, again, it's about seeing real ball flight uh, on top of the simulation, real ball flight out there in that club fitting. So uh, if the weather doesn't permit and we'll, we're inside, we can still get really good, especially if I already know your game. Um, we can get really, really good data. A lot of times I already know what you need or I'm really close. And so that, that club fit inside will probably take us to 100%. So, because I can, I already know the nuance without having to go out on the grass. Totally. But, but that's a big change for us. So, I'm, I'm excited about that and uh, the GC quad and the simulation, uh, the tour wedge experience, which uh, we're going to launch, uh, not next week, but the following week. I kind of uh, want to parlay <laughs> this into what we were, we wanted to talk about the studio on this podcast for sure, but kind of parlay this into what teaching and what the studio is all about and it's making improvements yeah. right making improvements in our game yep. and so before we started the podcast we were talking about uh how we wanted to bring up on this podcast how people don't understand how far they've come or how um, much how much learning they've actually done over the course of um you know however long you've been playing golf and, and i guess i'll start specifically with me um i was out on the range today just fiddling around with with some of my movement and i was getting really frustrated i was like gosh goodness gracious like i can't i can't get this movement right and yeah. so uh, in the in the micro I got real obsessed and with with trying to get this movement right and feeling like I was doing it wrong and then what we were talking about beforehand if you zoom out to the macro and go back two years from from today when I met you mm -hmm. and how how much my game has changed since then it's a crazy amount and so Scott I kind of want you to take it from here as far as what advice you have for people who are struggling in the micro but need to remember the macro the bigger picture well I, th I think um as always, like, right, humans are a spectrum, right? We, we run from one end extreme to another. Um, but I, I see a trend um, that, I, that I really don't like. Um, and it's in the adults just as much as it is in the juniors. Uh, the worst part is it's super heavy in the juniors and it's starting super early. Mm. Uh, look, when we're kids, like, I, I was always keeping score, right? Um, but... I didn't have everything around me all the time keeping score like that. It wasn't like this pervasive message at me all the time. And so 
Um, I mean, we threw gasoline on that fire with digital media, digital platforms. Um, the the cost of things being so low as a general rule as a society. Like, if you look at if you look at the value of things that we have, like we're paying very little for the exact for the actual like investment that was required to make the things that we have. Yeah, give <laughs> give one example for the people. Um, for instance, like you can go get designer clothing for super cheap. Like you can get it in different places. You got secondhand options, so like you can look a very certain specific way uh, without actually having to do the work to get there. Or you just get yourself a credit card. Like we we've developed things where we can put up a persona that we then have to hold up to barrier to entry. Right. Yeah, right. So yeah. we've removed those barriers to becoming or appearing to be. And now you got digital media removes all barriers. Right. I can filter anything to make to create a perception of performance that I don't actually have, which perpetuates a problem of genuine progress. So um, one of my big fights, and we brought this up at the at the last um, uh, podcast event, uh, which is actually the last time we talked, um, but it's like people want to discount what they've accomplished so quickly. Um, if I look at my kids, and you know, I think a lot of this has to do with um, Rebecca and I's parenting together, but her in particular, she's with them the most. Uh, but it's like we make them keep trying until they do it or until we know that they've tried hard enough that they then need a little help. And then when we provide the help, we don't provide it all the way. We give them a just an inkling of it. And so what they're la- able to do is develop genuine confidence. And what do they say the first time they do it? I did it all by myself. Right. Every single, every single one of them. Um, and now I'm talking under the age of seven, eight. Once they get older than that, depending on how they've been trained up until that point, they will perpetuate certain cycles. Now, it may not be from the parents, but it, it may be from society as a whole, whatever it may be. But the issue that I see is um, I'm going to bring this up again because it's so good. Right before that podcast, that night before, <coughs> um, I had a free river club clinic at the back and it was on driving. And I had eight people there. And I had. Every one of them come up and had them all hit a shot in front of everybody else. Like, if I walk you up on the driving range, I have seven people watch you hit, you're going to struggle, okay? Like, that's just the reality of it. You're going to struggle. So <clears throat> what we looked at was in that setting, I said, all right, this is what I want you to do. We've already worked on it for 30 minutes. Pull them all together. They know what they're supposed to do. I said, I want you to do it on this swing. They all did it on the first swing. And the next comment that comes in by almost every single one of them in that group was like, yeah, but I can't do it twice. I was like, what? You, you just did it once. Why yeah. can't you do it again? My kid tied his shoes the first time. Are you like, he's not going, I can't do it the next time. Even though he's had way more failed attempts at it, he's not going, well, I can't do it the next time. The assumption is I've done it once. Therefore, I can do it again, which is why I said confidence is having done Knowing that you can and will do it again. You know what's funny too. There's no assumption that he wasn't going to be able to do it. He, no. The assumption is I'm going to be able to do that. Whether that's buckling my car seat, whether it's look, I scored a goal. I can score another goal. Right. In right. soccer, like once you get over that barrier too, you'll be astounded of what you can gosh. actually do. Or it's not even that what you can actually do. It's more like the attitude that you have while you're doing it. One of the biggest criticisms about me on the range is that I hit way too many balls way too quick. And that's been a common theme for me. However, yes, I am too quick. But honestly, what I am trying to do in that moment is 
get it once, know how that feels, and then repeat go. the feel again. Go while I have it. Keep it go going. while I have it. And so I think a lot of people are like, all right, let me get it. work up the courage to hit this shot. Oh, I hit it. Okay, now I don't want to do it again, like kind of thing. Ooh, it's like I like you, that. You have, to, you have to be willing to go through the process to get it right multiple times in a row before you can start kind of putting the pieces together, right? It's yeah. like having solving a, a thousand-piece puzzle, uh, uh, puzzle and only getting two pieces right and being like, oh, I'm done. I don't want to do yeah. the rest. Well, and, and the beauty of like the way I teach and the way I fix golf swings, right, is I <laughs> – I struggle with this, like the fact that I can fix it so fast because if I fix it super quick, then I perpetuate the performance thing. However, part of the reason why I fix it so quick is to show them that they can fix it that fast. No, it doesn't mean you're going to every time. You're going to struggle in a part of learning any new skill, but don't go, oh, look, I just can't do it. Like I do it for these five holes, but then I can't do it for these. It's like, and that's the phrase. It's a can or can't phrase. And it's a, I can't enjoy the process of learning and it's like I did one wrong and like the whole world comes apart. There's a phrase too that uh, most people overestimate what they can do in a year but underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. so the question now is how do we overcome those two statements, right? How do we push for the long haul but appreciate what we have in the short term and, and try and exceed what we think we – or try and – match up to the results that we tr that we put on ourselves right. um I, I think the first <coughs> sorry <laughs> right now like if we were to pull up my gmail right now there's a massive draft of something that i'm working on that actually addresses this what i, what I call the uh, performance wheel um we have performance in marriages we have performance in um in uh school we have performance in sports sports golf. like and we have performance in the things that we buy and the things and so and we have performance on digital platforms when's the last time somebody posted them you know themselves you know normal just like here's a moment social um, media is the highlight reel of your life right that's what it is and so even even digital things that you see on tv and tv shows is all highlight reels it's all designed to engage the emotional centers of your body and let them run free and rampant right and the danger with that is that it colors your world into a fantasy world mm -hmm. that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so you have to detox yourself from it. So the first one, and we talked about this before the podcast too, um, I've looked at just like my overall operations and my happiness and like my back of the house and my personal life, et cetera. Um, and in there... You have, um, what's the biggest thing that I'm consuming the most? It's not actually consuming consumption. Like, we're consuming material through this phone 100% of the time. And so, I've cut my usage 50% in the last four weeks. Mm. Um, currently down, this week right now, I'm really where I'd like to be. I'm averaging under two hours a day on on digital spaces. It's awesome, yeah. Dropping Netflix. Like, look, Netflix is dying to pull at that emotional center every time, too. And there's no stop. Like, that's one of the things that psychologists are talking about. The problem with it is there's no stop. It used to be, hey, I'm going to watch my show, and i got to wait till next week. And so it, allows, it allowed a stopping point 
a hard stop where you had to wait. And one of the biggest contributors to success is delayed gratification. So true. What we have now is instantaneous gratification. And so uh, this is where I'd like, I have this balance of like, should I slow down and fix them slower? So I don't perpetuate the cycle. And I don't think so because I'm on a bigger mission of like, look, you can do this. And so here's the thing, though. Here's the thing for you. And then I've got an example in my personal life. But for you, you want to fix them quick. But just because you fix them quick doesn't mean their scores are going to drop instantaneously. Well, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Right. But if you're taking somebody from never having broken 100 before to then breaking 80, like that delayed gratification theoretically could be the day that they break 80. Right. Like, correct. Correct. And so that's the difference, too, between the micro and the macro, where the micro might be like, oh, let me fix them quick and get them striking the ball really well. But the macro is the score at the end of the day. Right. So you are in this predicament between like, do I fix them fast or or what? But I think I do because I want people to see they're actually capable of doing things and they don't have to pretend. Well, and there's no benefit in fixing them slow, too, like we talked about. Right. Like there's no benefit of that. I make more dollars, but like I don't train confidence in them i don't train body control right i'm kind of i'm actually holding my best back yeah which is yeah i think foolish one thing i want to bring up real quick because you were talking about how you got your phone usage down this past weekend first of all i need to be better about not consuming my phone (laughs) as much as i do working in real estate i kind of have to but a situation came up last weekend where i'm huge into formula one racing and those races sometimes happen at like 5 and 6 a.m. because they're happening overseas, right? Yep. And so a lot of the times I will watch them on replay later. But when I wake up that morning at like 8 a.m. and the race is like almost over, I don't check my phone because I don't want the spoilers from the race, right? Right. And so I didn't check, my, I didn't check social media or, or anything that had anything Formula One related on it until like 1 p.m. that day after I watched the race. Yeah. And I was like, I, t- I, I told my girlfriend, I said, I said, Hannah, I just feel, I feel good. Like, I just feel, I feel better yeah. when I'm not, when I'm not doing that. The, the first like two or three days of the phone detox, um, it wasn't, it wasn't complete like cold turkey on it, right? So I pulled Instagram off my phone, I pulled Twitter off my phone, I pulled Safari off my phone, I pulled, I pulled my, um, email off my phone so I can't like constantly check all that stuff so like I can wow. only check it at work yeah. um, I cut text notifications off on my phone like I cut as much away as I possibly could strip away of all of it it wasn't like one thing it was like let's strip it all away so I don't have access to that so I took away um, all the apps with the exception of like the PJ Tour app if I wanted to check the scores of a tournament but even then I started using that but the first like two days were like awesome the next week and a half was like super difficult like i felt myself more anxious i felt myself like wanting to to like okay now what do i do like i needed something to feed the the wheel like you actually get endorphin hits off of that perpetual consumption and so started reading again and actually when you look at my personality profiles and such like reading's one of my strong components but i hadn't done it nearly as much in the last like two months i started the year out great kind of fell off of that but like getting back into reading was incredible so the detox starts with like stopping the comparison to somebody else mm. or what you once mm. did a long yeah. time ago or yeah, yeah. where you're gonna be three years from now like where am i now what am i doing well like, I think you always have to start there. Like, the first thing I ask in a tournament, I ask students two things. It's like, what'd you shoot? 
Because if they're afraid to tell me what they shot, then I know their identity is tied to what they do. So mm. they're stuck in performance. Like Whoa, I want you, big, yeah. I want you to get out of that. Like, just tell me what you shot. Well, it wasn't very. Would you? It's just a number. Was it 73, 63, 103? I don't care. Just tell me the number. Get over that. Like that's such a simple task. Do you you can say what you shot. Like that's not hard. Do you remember what I told you right but after the is. club championship? Remember what I told you right after the club championship? You go like, well, what'd you shoot today? And I was like, a 102 or something like right. that. Right. <laughs> right. Like, it wasn't good. But, like, it was what it was. Right. And it allows you to just kind of be free from it. That's one thing that I feel like is one of my strengths is I'm just like, you know what? Like, whatever just happened, like, we'll we'll do better. Like, we'll, it's in, we're focusing on the future here. I feel like one of my strong suits is not, especially in the game of golf, is not necessarily worrying about everything that I did prior. Right. And so my second question is, what did you do well? Mm. And it, a lot of stuff, so if they don't tell me the score right away, they'll say, oh, I didn't do anything well. I was like, nope, you can't say that. That's not true. You I, got shot, I shot 87. You okay, finished. I shot 93. <laughs> you did finish. One of my favorites was David Duvall played in the British Open a while back, and he shot like 96 or something like that. And they're like, are you going to withdraw? He's like, I'm not going to withdraw. I signed up for the tournament. It's honoring to the tournament directors. It's on, like, so what? I uh, like, it's just a number. I get to play in the British Open. Well, here's the other thing too. Let's say you WD after round three, right? You can't prove to yourself in round four that I can finish and I can do better than what I did right. the day before. You perpetuate this cycle, like, oh my gosh, it's back to the same thing. What'd you shoot? I can't tell people what I shot, so I'm on WD. Hmm. That's the reason why they WD. All these, especially on these like Monday Q things where you've got to like shoot. 66 or better to qualify guys once they know that they can't do it like they're on sometimes at the turn sometimes after 14 or 15 holes they'll, they'll wd or they'll no card i was like just put the score on the like finish the tournament be honorable to your playing partners that you're playing with like if you bug out after nine and there's only two of them and you're playing with four and two of you are gone that's that doesn't help anybody it's dishonoring to the people you're playing with. And you know what? It's a weak mindset. Go ahead and quit and don't play. Get out. We don't need you in the industry. Right. That's so good. We'll like, repeat. They didn't yeah, hear yeah. what she said. So, uh, and it perpetuates that you have to shoot this low score all the time. Right. Like, it adds to the pressure. It's like, just go play and finish. And so my third question, and this is the big one for me, is actually not the first two. The third one is, what did you learn? Mm. Not what did you do bad? Now, what do you have to go practice more? What did you learn? Because learning takes failure and spins it in a positive light and says, I, I controlled my environment because I learned something from today. I didn't let it control me. One thing that I do that I just started doing um, is I keep a notebook in my bag. Mm -hmm. And what I'll do is I'll, after I finish a round, whether it's good or bad, I'll kind of describe in a, in a few sentences, how I felt about the round. And then I'll go through every section of my bag. I'll go driving, woods, long irons, short irons, wedges, putting. And I'll just go in one sentence what I felt or what I learned in each one of those segments. Uh -huh. So if I'm like, okay, man, I was not driving the ball well today, but like my putter couldn't miss the hole. And so it gives me the win of knowing what I did yeah. well and also what I need to improve on. And then the card yeah. goes right in there to figure out what I did. Yeah, and, and it's, um, it's, it's just a, a simple exercise to learn and enjoy 
what it is that you're doing. I, I the think journey. People, uh, people, I think people forget like to just play. And there's a chance, I think Scotty Scheffler's in this category right now, but there's a chance that the last person that genuinely just enjoyed the game of golf that was professional was maybe Payne Stewart. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because, like, Arnie and Jack and Gary Player and, like, the list goes on and on, Ernie Els, like, they, the way they talk about the game, it's affectionate. Like, it's, it's, not a, it's not a relationship, like, it's a job or a duty or a work thing. Like or moneymaker <laughs> with Liv going on right now and everything. Right. Like it's, That's a whole yeah. other topic. Oh, I I love so. I know I had so uh, they asked about Tiger, um, specifically with the British Open. Yeah, and so one of my juniors asked me one time at the when we took all the kids to the Tour Championship, and this was um, um, Tiger didn't win this year at the Tour Championship, but one of my juniors asked me, he said, "Do you like old Tiger or new Tiger better?" I said. Well, it depends on the speci- the specificity of what it was. Like from a performance standpoint, old Tiger. From a personal enjoyment, love of the game, like like the reason why he was in tears when he won that year at the Tour Championship was not because was not just because he won and because of everything he overcame to win. It was because he finally learned to enjoy the game, and I think he realized what he missed in all those years that he would just perform, 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 perform. You can perform at a high level with a being on the performance wheel, but you will not be happy and enjoy what you had. And I, he, you know, he's been mentored by a number of other guys older than him and played the game before him. But I want us to kind of circle back to playing the game like Arnie used, you know, Arnie and those guys. And that's one of the reasons why I love the tournaments that Brooks runs out here. We were talking about this before we started with some of the people in the audience. Like they're just fun. (laughs) Like, they're just fun, and it's still competitive. Like, there's still a very competitiveness to it. Like, you get flighted after the first round, and you know what your flight's in. Like, so you're still engaged and competitive because you know what flight you're in. You're not just like, okay, we have three flights, and, like, basically two-thirds of the flight doesn't have a chance. And so it's just fun. Like, he's able – like, the way he designs it allows us to do both. And um, I – and I think, like, when you look at the way Brooks talks about when he presents the awards, when he talks about it, like, the leader's expressing enjoyment in tournament play. He's not expressing, like, here's our winners, congratulations, go home. Like, there's affection that's in it. And it's something I'd like to see back in the game. Like, I used to just go play in the evening by myself, and i just walk. Sometimes i play barefoot, and i play until I can't see the golf ball. And even when I couldn't see the golf ball, I kept playing. Not because I had to, not because I was trying to get a college scholarship. Like college scholarship wasn't even on my mind until junior, like late junior year. And somebody was like, hey, have you thought about playing college golf? I was like, not really. But I was really good. But like I just enjoyed the game. And that's like so much of what I see in college golf especially. And it's, it's really getting bad down in junior golf. It's like everybody's so stuck on performance. It's like, what did you shoot? What did you do well? What did you learn? You know what's funny about those people, too, is specifically with, like, the juniors, and I'm relaying this back to baseball as well, where it seems like the people who make it the furthest, the people who have long careers in the pros, or the people who perform really at a a high level in college, they love the game first. There's too many people who just, and I was one of them, too, who just focus strictly on performance every single time, 
And at that point, you put so much pressure on yourself that when you get to college, you just fizzle out. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's clear for people that are listening, we're not talking about everybody gets a trophy. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, everybody doesn't get a trophy. You lose. You take last. You play bad. You we're talking about loving <coughs> the game so much that all you want to do is just win. And just not even just, like just the performance play. issue. Just, just be just out there play. and play, but be at a high level, too. Yeah, like, you c- Loving the idea of right. being good, like loving the idea of, of loving the game so much that you want to be as good as you can at it. Right, I think I think that's a better phrase. Totally, just be as good as you can because not everybody's going to be fair. Fair, you know. Uh, one of the things I love that Hank used to say would be, um, get as good as you can get and be okay with whatever that is. Mm, yeah, there you go. But people aren't like unless I'm here, then I can't enjoy it and. Actually, the funny part about that whole type of mindset and approach, and people don't notice it in little ways. Like, I catch it in little notes in the language and the way that they talk. Little things like they don't putt it out because putting it out, or they, they are careless with a putt on purpose, a short one. Yeah. They're careless with it because they can't handle, if they took it seriously and they missed it, they can't handle the defeat of that. Go up and it's okay to take it seriously and hit it. And if you miss it, it's okay, too. Like, it's take it seriously and still enjoy it. Like, it's get as good as you can get. And people have a hard time with that. Like, it's not okay. I actually think it's one of the reasons why people won't take, why there's such a difficulty hiring. It's not just because of the government. It's, it's not. It's like, look, I can go hop on an Uber and work kind of like one day at Target and do Uber at night. I make $25 an hour working uber eats at night doing nothing with no skill and i can just say i'm in between jobs i haven't decided what i'm gonna do yet because it's easier to say that than to say you know i really want to do this and that really hasn't worked out for me because it's a performance like everything's performance everywhere and people lose the enjoyment like of just playing like it's a game there are there's are so many people that i know that wish they could just play so I think to we'll never have an opportunity to wrap this up, really focus on the macro, not the micro. Understand mm-hmm. that you want to play this game and that you might want to be good at it or you might just want to enjoy it, whatever it is. But don't look at the micro and make assumptions about the bigger picture. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the, the big principle. I think here's two takeaways. Like here's like you always like to ask me, like, what can we do? I think you should start every round with this. What did I shoot? Just state, finish every ball out, take every penalty stroke. Unless you're like brand new and you, you're not really comfortable playing all the way back yet, like that's fine. Just play from closer. You don't have to keep score right away. But when you're ready to keep score, keep score. It's, it'll be sooner than you think you're ready for. 100%. But what did I shoot? Just say it. Tell, tell everybody what you shot. They ask, how'd you do today? I shot whatever. Start there. Don't start with I played good or bad. What'd you shoot? Second question is what did I do well? Third question is, what did I learn? Then the other one that I want to give on an aside from a mental standpoint, actually, like, so those are just three, like, tools you can do. The other one is more, like, deep underneath. I want you to watch the language that you have with the game. And is it affectionate? Or is it, like, performance-based, relational, and, like, your interactions with the game, are they loving? Like, I I was joking with uh, one of my juniors the other day. He's getting really upset. I was like, I want you to walk up to a shot and go, oh, like it's a bad, let's say it's a bad lie. Well, that's interesting. Um, You've presented me in a, I'm in a little bit of a predicament, but 
you're going to make this challenging on me, but uh, what do you have to teach me? Like, getting this, like, almost like dialogue with it. It's kind of joking. I, you don't do this with every shot, but, like, oh, well, you're not as pretty as I thought you were going to be, but you worked out pretty good. It worked out okay. I can handle that. Like, speak to what you're doing in an affectionate way to try and reset the system. And it's actually worked very well. It's kind of a weird dialogue. I'm actually having, I actually have two players, one college and one junior right now, um, that I'm asking them to work on this and actually write it down. Like, write down what the language is, like, write down several rounds. And then I want to look at it and pull it together and then kind of reformulate it into a, like, a mini book format. Like, this is what an affectionate round looks like. And, like, every challenge can be an affectionate round. Like, whoa, it's really windy, right? So, like, you come up with it, be creative with it, uh, have some fun with it. But Love it, love it. You can do things. You can do hard things. Well, we're going to sign off here from the back porch of Franklin Bridge. Really appreciate you guys sticking around and listening. Um, I will say this. Did we mention the ball? We mentioned the ball at the first part of the podcast, right? The the first golf ball hit out. Yeah, we did mention it. If you find that ball, it's good for a free lesson. So if you come across your rounds uh, here on the range, yeah, John's ears perked up. But yes, so John, but while you missed it, there is a golf ball out there that we hit out of the studio. It's the first golf ball. It's signed, dated, and there's a uh, Sharpie mark on the back that says first ball out of studio. And if you find it, it's good for one round or one lesson from Scott. So say that to say for all of you, get out on the range this week, utilize that river club, and we'll see you here in two Wednesdays from now. I guess by the time this comes out, it's next Wednesday. And um, we'll see you on the back porch of Franklin Bridge. So from Scott and Jack and our friends out here on the back porch of Franklin Bridge, we'll see you on the next one. Peace.